And good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to church this morning. And if you're visiting with us, a special welcome. It's great to have you with us. Uh, if you open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 12. Um, we've been going through a series in the book of Job. And um, today we come to Job's uh, speech where he wraps up the first cycle of speeches against him from each one of his three friends. Although we use that term loosely because as we've been seeing, they haven't been very friendly at all. Um, I'm going to, we're going to be covering in today's um, sermon chapters 12 to 14. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to read all of that right here. But today we're going to read um, from verse 1 through to verse 12 of chapter Uh, Sorry, verse 1 through to verse 25 of chapter 12. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughingstock though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure, those who carry their God in their hands. But ask the animals, and they will teach you, Or the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. When he tears down, oh, sorry, what he tears down, cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory, both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads counsellors away stripped And makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles and puts and put on by kings, and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped, and overthrows men long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisers and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He makes nations great 
and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Well, please keep your Bible open and handy there as we're going to cover quite a bit of God's Word today. Uh, But please join with me in prayer as we ask for God's help. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that we can meet together today as your people. We thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you for your word, Lord, that it is timeless. And we pray that now by your Holy Spirit, you'd open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in it. Not just wonderful theological truths that we can understand, Lord, but we pray that we would see Christ. We would see him high and exalted and lifted up and all that he has done for us. And we pray, Father, this for the glory of his name. Amen. I went hiking foolishly with my son Benjamin earlier this week and we decided to reach the summit of Hearts Mountain at dawn. This meant getting up at the crack of dawn and walking while it was still dark. As we started on the trail, though, my son Benjamin, who has a Pollyanna view of life, everything's rosy, everything's doable, everything, you know, is possible. He said, Dad, look, while we're here, why don't we not just go to the top of Hearts Mountain, why don't we go to Snowy Mountain, which is right next to it? Now, the views from Snowy Mountain are better than the ones from Hearts Mountain, but there is only one problem. And that is, the trail is nowhere near well as marked as the track to Hearts Mountain. It's a lot more rugged and overgrown. There's a fair bit of boulder jumping and rock scrambling, and it's, can I just say, really, really easy to lose your way, which is precisely what happened. At one point, we were at one of these really beautiful mountain lakes, and I don't think either one of us, is fair to say, really knew where the trail was going. Ben, who'd done the hike before, assured me that what we should do is go downhill and then go back uphill steeply rather than just make our way flatlining across the escarpment. Ben went one way, I went the other. (laughs) So off we went down this side track before I had to turn back and added another 20 or 30 minutes to our journey. The thing that was so frustrating about this whole experience is that you can see the summit. You can see the destination of where you're supposed to go the whole way along the path. Basically from the car park, right, which is an hour and a half away, to the top of Snowy or Mar, you can see where you need to go. It's just that the trail, for one, is not as clearly marked as the other. You know where you need to get to. It's as clear as day. But the trail is not as clear as you would hope. And so it's easy, can I just say, to trust in your own understanding rather than submit to the wisdom of somebody who, yes, Ben, has been there before. (laughs) I made sure, can I just say, on the way out, though, that 
we added to all of these numerous little rock cans, you know, those little rock pyramids, which somebody, um, you know, thankfully had created sparingly um, before us. Now there are many more of these <laughs> on the way back. You can thank me all later. As I was doing all of this, though, I realized, and I mean this seriously, this is exactly what happens when most people come to the book of Job. You can clearly see the summit. You know exactly how the whole book ends. But it's really, really easy to lose the trail. Because there are all of these false paths of interpretation that you could go down. Trails which, when you look at it, they seem really reasonable at first. But after a little while, you realize that they're actually a dead end. And you've got to turn back. And then you've got to retrace your steps to find the correct way to the summit. And it can make you feel like at this point, even though we're at chapters 12 to 14, it can make you feel like giving up. After all, there's a whopping 42 chapters in the book of Job. These are some of what we're going to cover today, the longest speeches in the book. Speeches which each of Job's friends are clearly wrong and it means that you also have to be extra discerning and instead of continuing to make your way along the path and observe all of the beautiful scenery firsthand I think if we're really honest the temptation that which most of us give into is we just skip it altogether or to use continue my analogy you take the cable car and you view it all from a distance and you look at all the pretty vegetation underneath your feet. As I hope you've already seen, though, the Lord has inspired all of these words for a reason. There are deep spiritual truths which we need to learn here, and therefore they require more effort to actually benefit from. But can I say, just like a good hike, that effort is always worth it in the end. Indeed, I think it's the pain and the effort of bashing your way through the bush which ultimately makes it when you get to your destination all the more satisfying. All the, and the, the scenery, the view from the summit, all the more precious because you know how far you've come, what you've had to navigate. Now, there are three cycles of speeches in the book of Job. Each one of the friends speaks three times. All except Zophar, we looked at last week, he only gets to speak twice. And a really good way of remembering is this. Eliphaz, the eloquent, Bildad, the brutal, and Zophar, the zealot. Each one of them, though, not only has um, a different approach, a different personality, a different style, but they also rely on a different type of authority. If you've been here over the coming weeks, you would have seen this. For Eliphaz, it's experience. He sees mystical visions or ghostly apparitions which appear to him in the night and give him secret knowledge or the correct interpretation on what path to take. For Bildad, it's tradition. What everyone else has, down through the ages, learned and taught 
And then for Zophar, it's his own reason. What logically makes sense to him. The problem, though, is as we've been seeing, with each and every one of these friends, they are relying or they're trusting in their own understanding rather than in the Lord. They all hold to some kind of wrong thinking, which is sometimes called, I think it's a helpful way of understanding their approach, transactional theology. The belief that if you're good, then you'll always be rewarded But if you're wicked, then you will always be punished. And as we've been seeing, particularly from, say, passages like Psalm 73, it's incorrect. That's not how the world operates all the time. All of which means that the reason why, according to his friends, Job is suffering is because he is guilty of somehow or other sinning. Now, as I said before, each one of these three friends is clearly wrong. And we know that they're wrong because at the end of the book, at the summit, at chapter 42, the Lord himself says so. And as a result, they're so wrong that Job is instructed to make atonement for them because they've ultimately not just sinned against Job, they've sinned against the Lord. They haven't spoken about him what is right. And they have dishonoured him, not only by how they've acted, but in particular, what they have said. But while Job is not suffering because he has sinned, chapters 12 to 14 illustrate, I think, that Job has started to sin in response to his suffering. That's a really big call to make, I know. So if you'll turn over to chapter 42, I'll show you why I make it. Let's go to the summit. Because if you think that everything Job says is correct, then like me, with Ben, you'll go down a wrong path. You've got a feeling in your gut it's the right way, but it's not. Sadly, even Job gets it wrong. In fact, When I wrote the study this week for our growth groups, I started to go down this wrong path, I think, myself. And as a result, I've had to backtrack. For Job, just like his three friends, and here's the key, says things which he needs to repent of before the Lord. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 42, we read this. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, this is a really important question regarding the book of Job, which every single commentator on the book of Job wrestles with. And that is, what exactly did Job repent of? We all know from chapters 1 and 2 that he isn't suffering because he sinned. 
For the Lord himself declared that Job was both blameless and upright. So what is Job repenting of now in dust and ashes? Well, the key is found in verse 1 of chapter 13. And can I just say, this is why it's really important to slow down and to carefully consider the content of the book of Job. Because it's key passages like this, which are incredibly easy to miss, but they function as, if I can put it like this, a little rock can put there by God to keep us on the right path of interpretation. You see, verse 1 of chapter 13, Job uses exactly the same words that he uses in chapter 42 when he repents. He says, My eyes have seen all this, my ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Now, as I said before, Job is not suffering because he had sinned. Let me just get that really clear, okay? That is the mistake of his friends. That is transactional theology. That is what they are rebuked of at the end of the book. That is what Job makes atonement for them. But that doesn't mean that everything that Job goes on to say either is correct. Indeed, as we're going to see today, Job goes on to say some highly inappropriate things about the Lord, which he will later on have to repent of. For the trap Job has fallen into is that he himself has started to trust in his own understanding rather than fully in the Lord. I realize we're jumping all over the place at the moment, and this is a very long introduction, okay? Don't worry, it's going to be a lot shorter after this. But if you turn over to Job chapter 27, I'll show you what I mean. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the theological paradigm called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, that's the four-sided shape which represents the four major authorities which we often appeal to when wherever we're making an ethical or even sometimes doctrinal decision. And they are experience, tradition, reason, or ultimately God's word, scripture. Whenever you have a debate with somebody, it's always good to discern which one of those four sides are they, are they relying on as the umpire or the final authority. Their experience, tradition, their own reasoning or logic, what makes sense, or scripture. But someone in the congregation emailed me afterwards. I'm going to dob you in, Sally, because the glory goes to her for this. And they helpfully pointed out that I had rightly missed something. And that is, there is another side to this particular paradigm. And the other side is conscience. I quickly realized how right they were. So maybe I can come up with a phrase for this and own it. I'm going to call this the Presbyterian Pentagon. <laughs> so in the future, if you ever hear this, it came here first, okay? Now... Unlike the Wesleyan quadrilateral, it doesn't have four sides, it's got five. 
Because remember, we're five pointers, right? As you'll see, though, it's also the authority which Job himself relies on. And can I say this in all seriousness? It's the authority which leads Job into error. Job says in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 27, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, that's a big call to make, the Almighty, who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Now can you see how not even one's conscience is an infallible guide? In your conscience, you can think that something is right or wrong, as the case may be, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is so. You may be sincere in your belief and you can be sincerely wrong. And just like Job, it can distort your understanding of the Lord, both his character and his ways. And you may need to repent. Now, chapters 12 to 14 contain one of the longest speeches in the book of Job. And just like each one of his friends, not everything Job says here is correct. And so we need to be extra discerning in considering what it means, lest you be like me and you go down the wrong path. The speech itself can essentially be divided into two parts. All of chapter 12 and the first part of chapter 13 contains Job's speech to his friends. And then the second half of chapter 13 and all of chapter 14 addresses Job's speech to the Lord. As I just said, it's a long speech and there are a number of false paths which are really, really easy to take. Chapter 12 opens then with Job expressing his deep frustration to each one of his friends. It says in verse 2, doubtless, <laughs> you can say the satire when he goes on it, doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I the mind as well as you, I'm not inferior to you, who does not know all these things? I've become a laughing stock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughing stock, though righteous and blameless. Now, again, can I just say, Job is not claiming that he is pure or without sin. Indeed, even the Hebrew word, which the NIV translates as righteous, is more literally just. So, though I am just and blameless. The problem is, though, is that Job's conscience is telling him that he doesn't deserve any of this. And in keeping with the theological system which Job's friends have been articulating, that's completely true. Based on works, based upon his own performance, from a strictly transactional point of view, he's innocent. But flowing out of this, Job goes on in verses 13 to 25 to describe a picture of God which is both wild and dangerous. Christopher Ashe, in his excellent commentary, says this, According to Job, God is dangerous in nature, dangerous with leaders, 
dangerous with nations and especially dangerous to all human beings who think they have the universe sorted out and have attained wisdom. Whether they be counsellors, judges, kings, priests, advisors, elders, princes or soldiers, God is, according to Job here, dangerous. Job presents a picture of God, which I think, if we're honest, is both unpredictable and capricious. For instance, Job says in verse 13, To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. Verse 14, he tears down and he imprisons. Verse 15, he holds back the waters and he lets them loose. Verse 16, to him belong strength and victory. Verse 17, he leads counsellors away and makes fools of judges. Verse 18, he takes off the shackles and puts, puts on by kings. Verse 19, he leads priests away, stripped and overthrows men. Verse 20, he silences lips and takes away discernment. Verse 21, he pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. Verse 22, he reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. Verse 23, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. And then finally, verse 24, he deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. This God or this perception of God that Job is presenting, Christopher Ash says, is so wild and so dangerous that he simply does whatever he pleases. And even in the climactic statement that Job makes in verse 15 of chapter 13, you get a sense that Job, in his conscience, has become way too confident for his own good. That because his conscience is clear, then God is going to have to justify himself regarding what he has done to him. God is going to have to answer to Job. Job says in verse 15, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Really? Really? You want to come against the almighty living one in whose presence you cannot survive and you will defend yourself? Really? Now to get a sense of how wrong Job is here, you have to flip across to chapter 40. Because it's like looking back at the trail from the summit once again. And the benefit of doing this is that it helps you to avoid taking the wrong turn, which is very easy to make. The Lord says to Job in verse 2 of chapter 40, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. We can paraphrase this. God's saying to Job, just who do you think you are? Then we read, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? See, he doesn't say, wow, thanks for the opportunity. Now, let me just tell you what I've been meaning to say all the way along. No, he says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice. But I will say no more. He says nothing. And to get a real sense of the gravity of what Job has done and why Job repents, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he says, okay, mate, brace yourself like a man. 
I will question you and you shall answer me. Will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? It is a serious, serious thing to come before the Lord and to think that he should ever answer us. And this is precisely what Job goes on to do in the second half of chapter 13 and the rest of chapter 14. Job goes on the offensive, you could say, and he lets loose. He says, if you go back to chapter 13, verse 20, Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase a dry after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. Job has come to the conclusion that the Lord considers him to be his enemy. One from whom he is hiding his face. But that's just not true, is it? Especially not with Job. For it was the Lord himself who had boasted to Satan that there was no one on earth like his servant Job. Have you considered him? God was not hiding his face from Job. What Job goes on to express then in the rest of chapter 14 is the ultimate fragility of life, especially in comparison to the awesome majesty and the eternal power of almighty God. That we're all but beautiful little flowers, he says, or fleeting shadows. We're here for a moment and then our glory is gone. Job says in verse 5, Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. Job has no idea just how much the Lord is watching over him. The only reason we know that Job is still alive is because God has placed a hedge of protection around his beloved son. That he has said to Satan, you can come this far, but no further. Job, though, goes on in verses 14 to 15 to accuse God of being too harsh, of being cruel. That there's going to come a day where he will remember just how much he valued his servant. And on that day, the guilt of all his sins shall be removed. Verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. I think that's a reference. It's hard not to think this as a Christian, but it's a false path, right? It's not a reference to resurrection from the dead. I know as a Christian, we think that, right? This side of the cross. But the release Job is talking about is not resurrection. It's talking about death, where he won't feel the pain of his diseased body anymore. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offense will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. While Job recognizes that he's not sinless, 
he's nonetheless become consumed with the innocence of his own conscience. That he doesn't deserve the painful trial that he's enduring. And there's going to come a day when God himself will have to vindicate him. Until that day comes, though, Job wants everyone, especially God, to know that right now you're making a terrible mistake. Just take a look at what Job himself says at the end of verse of the chapter in verses 18 to 20. It's pretty shocking, but it's uh, exactly what happens when our view of ourselves become big and our view of God becomes small. Job says in verse 18, but as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once and for all, and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. No wonder Job, in the end, when he did meet God, put his hand over his mouth. You don't speak that way to the Lord. Job has lost touch with reality and he's started to go down the wrong path. He's relying on the wrong authority. He's trusting in his own understanding. Mind you, none of his friends have helped in this regard. And I think there's even a sense where like, you could even say they've driven him to it. But suffering has a way of bringing to the surface, doesn't it? The self-righteousness. The pride. The independence. That is latent within us all. You know, the bottle of our lives, I used this analogy a few weeks ago, is shaken. And what comes out next is highly instructive. We're rightly shocked at the anger or the bitterness or the resentment which comes out. But it didn't come out because you were shaken. It came out because bitterness and anger and resentment was there. The situation or the person doesn't make you angry or bitter. That's because of what we are as sinful human beings. It's just that, well, there's a certain civility or niceness, doesn't it, which we are able to use most of the time to suppress it. Difficult people or circumstances, though, having God's providence, an amazing way of, or let's just say, well, it's not amazing, a terrible way of revealing the sinful disposition of our hearts. And this is precisely what's happening with Job. Once again, can I just be clear? Job is not suffering because he has sinned. That was what each one of his three friends accused him of being guilty of, and they're wrong. Job's sinful response here, though, is as a result of his suffering. And you know what, friends? We all have a choice when we're suffering how we respond. I know there's this psychological thing today that we just vent on God. 
but I think we're on safer ground when we do with the psalmist. We lie on our bed and we're silent. That we remember who we're talking to. This is a suffering which is being compounded and exacerbated by the failure of his friends to provide comfort. It still doesn't excuse Job's response. One of the biggest lessons, I think, to come out of the book of Job is, I, I think this, and I wish somebody had told me this when I was studying at college, be patient. I don't know about you, but I really don't like being patient. It's one of my many weaknesses. And as such, it's something that I've been praying for the Lord to develop in me more and more. In fact, I've got a confession to make. I stopped praying about this many years ago because I realized as a young Christian, if you pray for humility, things just get really hard and you're humbled. And if you pray for patience, God gives you really difficult situations to develop patience. So I just thought, I'm going to stop praying for those two things. What a stupid thing. So then I become impatient and proud. James 5 is clear that God is the, Job is the example of patience, par excellence. Even though he struggled with this particular sin, just like all of us do. He's held up as an example or a model for us to follow. Be patient like Job. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. Just like the farmer, James says, patiently waits for the rains to come at the expected time. So you and I are to be patient for the Lord's coming. Not just to return from heaven. I think he's the key. But to be patient and to wait for his justice. When he will put all wrongs right. Isn't that what makes us most impatient? I want justice and I want it now. When just like he did with Job and his three friends, he gives you 42 chapters. That's why James says that we are to be patient with one another. Here's the practical application of all of this. You might think, what does all of this have to do with us today? Well, let me be get really specific for us, brothers and sisters. Do not grumble against each other. Do not grumble or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. That's a timely challenge for us as a church, isn't it? Especially in the light of the events of the previous 12 months. Do not grumble against one another, says the Lord, because the Lord is standing at the door and if we, jumble, if we grumble against one another, we will be judged. What we're called to do more positively, though, is this. Be patient. Patience might well be a virtue, but it's definitely not something that we value as much as we should. I think we live in a day of instant gratification, don't we? Everything's given it to us now. But as we come through to the book of Job... The lesson that we keep getting told again and again and again is be patient. Not just as we learn from the example of Job, but also as we learn to make our way through the book itself. Be patient. 
I know you all want to get to the summit. Be patient. There's treasures. There's lessons. There's truths here which God knows you need to learn. And if you're not patient, you'll miss it. In particular, though, we need to trust in the Lord and not grumble. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us all in prayer. But before I do, let me ask you this. Are you guilty of being impatient? (laughs) Of grumbling against somebody else? That's a harder one to verbalize. If you're in any way convicted about that, then let's take the time, like Job, to repent. To humble ourselves before the Lord and to ask for his mercy and his forgiveness. For the Lord will hold us accountable, friends. The judge is standing at the door. Thankfully, though, the judge is also our saviour. And so he offers us freely forgiveness and healing for all who turn to him. The final word is not condemnation, but healing. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Ah, our Lord and Heavenly Father, we worship you and we praise you as the true and living God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, one whom no eye has seen or can see and survive. Lord, in the light of your presence, we see reality for how it truly is. We see how holy and pure and righteous you are, even though our lives are are filled with injustice. The brokenness that comes from living in a fallen world and being fallen people. We want to pray specifically this morning for your forgiveness. For Lord, for grumbling against each other and grumbling even and complaining to you. Why am I in this situation? Why don't you answer our prayers now? Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us and we pray, we dare to pray for each other that you would help us, you would make us patient. That, Lord, we would be patient through the trials you put us through. That you would create in us and transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. And that, Lord, we would live in a way that pleases and honours you. Lord, may our love for each other reflect the love that you have given us in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We're going to stand in response to God's word now. The musicians are going to come forward and they're going to come and lead us.